Thank you very much, first of all, everybody, for this um, opportunity to serve. It's a real um, privilege uh, for me to be here. It's my first time uh, in Bulgaria, uh, my first time this far east, and uh, bless you, <laughs> I'm enjoying it thus far. So uh, this I've called uh, Apologetics in 3D, particularly picking up on this whole thing of uh, three-dimensional films that seem to be all the rage in the cinema at the moment. Um, all will become clear as to why I've chosen that title uh, in a little while. Um, but you're very brave inviting a philosopher to come and talk to a bunch of scientists um, because uh, philosophers are people who are convinced that uh, defining things is intensely practical. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm not going to be um, uh, in, uh, pretending to give you a, an apologetic method or a, here's a magic formula uh, that you can use just apply steps A through C and you will automatically convert everyone uh, or anything like this um, rather uh, I'm going to present you with the results of some various different bits of research that I was doing over the last couple of years that suddenly all sort of fell into place uh, with one another, and which I think gives a really useful um, sort of background of ideas, of concepts, a sort of um, uh, a growing bed for growing uh, your uh, ministry in apologetics um, in a way that I've certainly personally found sort of helpful and fruitful. Uh, and so I hope you will uh, as well. Uh, now, I've brought various uh, resources uh, with me, including uh, a paper that I wrote on this theme that you can have, and then you can sort of photocopy and distribute as you will, and a couple of my books. I, unfortunately, my most recent book uh, is meant to have been published, and I meant to have it in my hands at the moment, um, but it doesn't seem to have got to me quite as quickly as it could have done. So I don't have my um, new book, which is uh, on Jesus, and an apologetic for Jesus called Understand Jesus with me, but I do have a copy of my last book, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, which is basically a response to the whole New Atheist uh, movement, and a uh, a slightly older book of mine called I Wish I Could Believe in Meaning, which is looking at the whole issue of meaning and purpose in life and things. And I think from some of the conversations I was having over dinner yesterday, that might be uh, particularly um, uh, apposite uh, book. Anyway, uh, let's get into apologetics in 3D. This is a painting by Raphael of uh, St. Paul uh, preaching in Athens. Um, and I think that the the understanding of apologetics that I'll be presenting is very much reflected in what St. Paul did in Athens and what his standard uh, practice was. Um, working for the Demaris Trust in the UK, I find this picture particularly interesting as well because, of course, we're named after uh, a Greek lady who converted to Christianity after hearing St. Paul uh, preaching uh, to the Areopagus in Athens. And uh, in this painting, the only female figure who must therefore be Demaris is this figure in the corner here. Um, and the, the, the male figure who seems to be welcoming uh, the gospel there, uh, the only uh, male Dionysus, I think, uh, who is mentioned at the end of Acts uh, chapter 17 as well. Uh, in the Apologetic Study Bible, Kenneth Boer um, talks about defining apologetics. And he says, it might very simply be defined as the defense of the Christian faith. 
And then he goes on to say, but it's a bit more complicated than that. So the simplicity of the definition masks the complexity of defining apologetics. A, a diversity of approaches have been taken, um, thinking about the, the meaning, the scope, the, the purpose of Christian apologetics. So I'm going to look at a number of different topics, and they'll all very closely relate to each other. And what I'll basically do is go through a chunk of material and then pause uh, for questions and discussion and so on before we move on uh, to another chunk. Classic verse for the apologist, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer. And of course the word that we're translating there as answer in the English is uh, the Greek apologia. Uh, it was a word taken from the, the law courts what your lawyer would do on your behalf as your defence lawyer. It literally means a, a word back, a, a, an answering case, a reasoned defence of your position. To give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And now I'm no expert in biblical languages at all, but I'm told by those who are that the, the Greek indicates that the uh, the gentleness term here relates to the, the person you're conversing with, whereas the respect word relates to your relationship with God. So it's saying, out of your respect for God, do apologetics with gentleness to the person who's asked you to give your case. And apologetics is part of spiritual warfare. I would say. You mentioned spiritual warfare in lots of segments of the church and people immediately think of you know, praying out demons and um, ministries of, of release from bondage and so on. And I have nothing against that. I believe in demons. I once wrote a book called The Case for Angels, uh, philosophically defending the existence of angels and demons. But that is not all that spiritual warfare uh, includes. So St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5 says the weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets it up, itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Uh, so for St. Paul, spiritual warfare is a large part to do with grappling with ideas and arguments and reasons and taking every thought captive to be obedient to Christ. And with uh, British theologian Alastair McGrath, not the most flattering photo of him here, um, I'd certainly think that apologetics and evangelism really do go hand in hand. You might be able to technically distinguish the two from one another, but it seems to me that in the pages of the, uh, the New Testament, uh, one doesn't really happen without the other. Francis Schaeffer was uh, fortunate enough to be uh, teaching some Norwegian students in Labrie in Hampshire uh, only earlier this week. Uh, Labrie ministry, of course, founded by Francis and Edith Schaeffer in the 70s. Very influential uh, evangelical uh, apologist and evangelist. And he said the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument or a discussion, but that the people within, uh, with whom we're in contact might become Christians uh, and live under the lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of life. Uh, this whole spectrum of life, this holistic view of what's coming on is what I'm beginning to get at in talking about apologetics in 3D. Uh, definitions of apologetics all often focus on the intellectual. Um, and I'm not saying don't focus on the intellectual, but I'm saying there's more to focus on. It's a sort of broader thing than or about the intellect merely. So here's my definition of apologetics. It's got three parts, and each of these three parts contains three concepts. So there are nine concepts for us to, to go through. But that's why it's apologetics in 3D. It's a three-by-three three, uh, grid of concepts. 
And I have a wonderful uh, chart of it all later. It's exciting. Um, so I think that apologetics could be well-defined as the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities to people who don't share that spirituality. And advocating Christian spirituality as objectively true and good and beautiful through the responsible use of rhetoric. So let's uh, we'll unpack spirituality and Christian spirituality, truth, goodness and beauty and the three elements of, of classical rhetoric as we go through. But let me pause there for any questions of clarification and, and so on. Marvellous. Okay. Um, James W. Sire, in his very good book, The Universe Next Door, it's now in its sort of fifth printing, has quite a long definition of worldview, which I shall just leave up there and won't quote at length. Um, but it's interesting that over the different editions this book's gone through, his definition of thinking about a worldview um, has become more holistic. It used to be very narrowly intellectual. He used to say, it's your set of answers to the basic questions about life, the universe, and everything. And he now is describing it in terms of, yes, it is that, but it's also your commitment, the sort of orientation of your whole life, uh, living your life inside a certain story that you tell yourself about reality. Um, so it's become a sort of more rounded definition. Uh, I would say that a spirituality is even more rounded than James Sire's definition of a worldview. And I put it like this. A spirituality is a way of relating to reality. It's about relationship. Relationship to ourselves, to each other, to the world around us. And particularly importantly, to whatever we, we think of as being ultimately real. And we... We do this process of relating through our worldview beliefs coupled with our attitudes towards what we think is real, which together tend to lead us to behave in certain ways. And insofar as your actions are reflecting your attitudes towards what you believe is true... What you do in life is spiritual. And I would say that everybody has a spirituality. Richard Dawkins, the famous British atheist, has an atheist spirituality. Which he has certain beliefs. You know, there's no God. The world's just made up of matter and so on. He has certain attitudes towards things because of that. You know, religious people are idiots and uh, I want to get rid of religion and religion is bad and uh, we need to be free from this sort of, um, uh, well, Christopher Hitchens more would sort of uh, have this whole view of we need to be free from this potential totalitarian dictator God kind of thing. We need to liberate ourselves from that. Uh, and that leads new atheists like Dawkins and Hitchens to do certain things like write books criticising religion. Um, so they have a spirituality, it's just a very different one um, than a Christian spirituality or a Buddhist spirituality or what have you. You could also perhaps fruitfully turn this diagram into a, a loop, into a circle, because it tends to reinforce itself. Because you believe certain things and you, you have certain attitudes, say you tend to do things like attending Bible study group. But because you attend Bible study group, that tends to reinforce certain things that you believe uh, and to uh, help you to have the right attitudes uh, in life and, uh, through the support of Christian community and praying for one another and so on. And, um, because you have that, you tend to keep going to the Bible study group and, and so on. It, it self-reinforces itself. I think that's true for any spirituality, which is why it's quite difficult to get people to move from the spirituality that they have to a different one. 
whatever that is. Um, and that's why it can be quite difficult to get people to become Christians, because you're asking them to change spirituality. You're not only asking them to swap one list of things that they believe for a different list of things they believe. You're asking them to change, not all, perhaps, but perhaps a lot of their attitudes in life, their commitments, uh, their practices, the things that they do in life. You're asking them to change more than just their mind. And Jesus seems to have got here before me. It's always disappointing as a philosopher when you have a bright idea and you think, oh, oh, that's really exciting. And then you read someone else and you go, oh, they got there first. Uh, so I shouldn't be too disappointed that Jesus got there first, though. Um, when he answered the question about what's the most important commandment, what's the main purpose of life, um, this is from Mark chapter 12, verse 30, and he's referencing back to Deuteronomy, and you can see slightly different ways of wording this in the different Gospels. But he says, uh, the point of life is to love God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength, i.e. Uh, your attitudes, your thinking, your beliefs, and your doing. So Christian spirituality uh, is to love God with your whole self, your beliefs, attitudes, actions, and to love your neighbour as yourself, according to Jesus. Of course, you do have to add that according to Jesus, he is the, the kind of gateway into the life of this spirituality. The, to, to participate in this, this spirituality, what you really need is a, a forgiven relationship with God, obtainable through Christ Himself, So where he's saying, you know, I am the gate. Whoever, whoever enters into this form of life through me will be saved. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you'll find rest from your souls from Matthew 7. So back to 1 Peter 3.15 with, with that in mind, you'll notice that Peter is talking about various actions. Uh, be prepared to give, to give the reason, do this. So he's calling us to do things in commanding us to be apologists. Uh, why? Because of the hope that you have. With an attitude of gentleness. With an attitude of respect for God. So apologetics is based in various Christian attitudes. Uh, which are in turn founded on beliefs. The answers. The reason. Um, the, the things that you've prepared beforehand that gives you that foundation of knowledge. Um, and so, once you kind of have in mind this beliefs, attitudes, actions, Jesus' reply to the greatest commandment, you start seeing uh, this organic structure of spirituality, filled out in the particularly Christian way, cropping up all over the place uh, in the scriptures. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 37 uh, Peter has just given the first sermon, the first evangelistic speech after Pentecost. When the people heard this, the beliefs that he was communicating about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead, they were cut to the heart. They had a certain attitude response to what they'd heard proclaimed as being true. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? Classic. Uh, illustration of the way in which all of these three things are involved in the process of evangelism, of persuasive evangelism, of apologetics, whatever you term you want to use, really. Uh, Paul in Colossians chapter 3, 15 to 17. Um, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach uh, things all to do with beliefs. And admonish one another with all wisdom. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Christ. So it comes up again and again. Um, Philippians 4, 6 to 7. Um, hearts, minds, present your requests, etc. Another pause point there. I should mention that, actually. I'm, I'm mic'd up here because I'm recording myself for my podcast channel. 
um, which I always do when I talk, so um, fair warning. <laughs> mm. Is that all clear? Good? Great, I shall move on. <laughs> Marvellous, yes. <laughs> So let's look at that, that second part of the definition of apologetics and what philosophers since uh, medieval times have called the transcendental values. This has nothing to do with transcendental meditation. <laughs> Rather, this is talking about um, values, things that we make value judgments by, that transcend the categories between different disciplines that we might cut rarity up to study them at the university, say. These are the values that transcend, go above and beyond the individual disciplines and can be applied within all of them. So they're called the transcendental values. Uh, British philosopher John Cottingham, uh, in a newspaper article a couple of years ago, noticed that to everyone's surprise, the increasing consensus among philosophers today is that some kind of objectivism that is the idea that, that values are things that we discover, not things we invent. They're really out there, uh, whether or not we believe in them or like them and so on. Some sort of objectivism of truth and of value is correct. Truth, beauty and goodness, this is the three classical transcendental values, truth, goodness and beauty, carry with them the sense of a requirement or a demand I love his way of putting it here. He says, the true is that which is worthy of belief. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. And the good is that which is worthy of choice. So I have this sort of worthiness value linking all of these concepts. And I did a, a big chunk of my MPhil research was on objective defences of definitions of truth, goodness and beauty as being objective and how they related to each other and how they related to the nature, the character of God. Um, so this uh, really uh, fires me up, this particular sort of stuff. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> now we'll come of no surprise to see that these transcendental values relate to the categories of spirituality so truth obviously relates to belief you want to believe what's true Um, goodness to actions are you acting in the right way and uh, this leaves by process of elimination beauty to link with attitudes. And I think that's right when you think in terms of thinking about beauty of character, of forming someone's character and the way in which you, we would say, you know, beauty is more than skin deep. Uh, she's a beautiful person. You know, rather than simply, oh, what a beautiful body you have. You know, uh, it's much more of a compliment according to scripture to be told you're a beautiful person <laughs> You know, all of that stuff in the Proverbs about uh, a golden ring in the snout of a pig. Uh, Think of the wisdom literature. I think that's right. So, um, back to Philippians 4, 6 to 9. Um, And this is a really classic verse for thinking Christianly about values, I think. Um, St. Paul and the Christian tradition coming from a pre-modern classical uh, worldview are no postmodern subjectivists. Um, and I love this verse. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, not whatever's true for you, okay? <laughs> whatever is true, <laughs> whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, and there I think he's clearly talking about goodness, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, beauty. Now, uh, Norman L. Geisler, American Christian philosopher, I think he studied his uh, Christian apologetics books some time ago. Uh, Christian apologetics by Norman Geisler. 
Um, in a lecture on beauty, he distinguishes between the fact that you, someone might admire something and the question of whether the thing that they're admiring is admirable. Uh, can you wrongly admire something? Well, I think you know, clearly you can. Uh, a pyromaniac admiring their, their work as uh, someone's house burns down <laughs> uh, is wrong to admire what they have uh, done. Um, yes, there may indeed be a certain beauty to the flickering of the flames and so on, but clearly the broader context, when you take that into account, means that this is not a beautiful uh, event that they're watching because they are you know, putting someone out of house and home. Um, so just because you do admire something doesn't settle the question of whether or not you should admire it, and that depends on the nature of the thing that you're admiring, not on you. You don't make something beautiful by admiring it any more than you make something true by believing it, or make something right by thinking it. Um, in my own field research, I quoted from a, an atheist philosopher who was a complete subjectivist about ethics. J.L. Mackey wrote a book called Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. Um, but he noted that if you thought that ethics was subjective, you should think that aesthetics, that beauty, was subjective. And it would be really odd to think that one was subjective and the other was objective. But turn that around. If you think goodness and ethics is objective, actually it makes a great deal of sense to see beauty and aesthetics as being objective as well. And this seems to be St. Paul's view here, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So anything about the, uh, the transcendental values and the objectivity of truth, goodness and beauty? Yes. Well, I guess it's going to depend very much on an individual basis. I, I, I mean, I, I do put it into that, that circle, and I guess you can kind of break into that circle mm-hmm. at any of the lev- uh, any of the mm-hmm. the points around it. Um, I mean, I put the linear one there because perhaps this is because I'm a philosopher. I tend to think that the you know, the beliefs are, the, are, are foundational <laughs> and the other things you know, follow uh, and certainly there's no point in, in kind of saying well you know I, I like the Christian lifestyle and um, it makes me feel good and, and uh, gives me a sense of purpose and meaning in life but of course I don't think any of it's true <laughs> um, uh, I think the truth has to undergird these other things uh, really but how you come to discover that truth for some people who are particularly academically minded it might well be through an intellectual process of searching well what's the, what's the arguments and the evidence one side or the other um, coming to see that Christianity is true and therefore thinking oh well I, I better actually do something about this once you've got to the belief that Jesus is Lord, it is of course another thing to then take that step of having belief in Jesus as Lord, uh, which is an attitudinal, a volitional thing. But certainly, I I think probably the sociology of the thing would be that for most people, um, they believe what the family, what the culture around them believes, what's what's, uh, in the media, what's in the society around them, um, and they will often change because they find something dissatisfies them 
with what they have at, at some level, intellectual or, or sort of feelings, meaning that some dissatisfaction, and they they see something attractive in an alternative. Be that in New Age meetings, in bookshops about environment or the healing properties of light or whatever, <laughs> talking about the other day. Um, but maybe that's because they're getting a sense of community there that they're lacking in, in the culture. Um, and that is an attractive thing, and you can see why. And yes, people are built for community and so on. It's do they then go on to ask the questions about truth that should really undergird that, um, uh, that really help sustain true uh, community uh, and so on um, so I think whichever way people come in to the circle as it were to really become fully, fully sort of realised as a spiritual uh, person uh, you have to um, grow into all of those those elements um, that the, you know, the, the Christian who is full of head knowledge but isn't loving towards his brother, is, is failing. Uh, but also, you know, just as much as the, the Christian who's so involved in social activism, but uh, doesn't really know what, what they believe or why, or is, is not worshipping the Lord with their whole self, as Jesus calls us to. Yeah. Excellent question. Okay, so a little bit look at, at rhetoric. I, it's a term that certainly has a bit of a bad name in the West, and we would often sort of use it to say, um, oh, a particular politician, say, made a rousing speech, and it was great rhetoric, but we didn't like the content. Um, <laughs> uh, now, classical thought would, would have thought that saying something like, oh, it was great rhetoric, but I didn't like the content, uh, content w- was a contradiction in terms. <laughs> uh, so let me unpack the, the classical tradition of, of rhetoric. Um, St. Paul, very interesting, of course, is a child of two cultures, a, a Jew's Jew, but who was, grew up and was educated in, uh, grew up in Tarsus, which was um, a sort of very uh, university cosmopolitan uh, city of the empire and attended uh, a Jewish school that not only taught Jewish thought, but also taught classical thought, and had people studying uh, both traditions at the School of Galamiel. So these transcendental values that we looked at relate to the three elements of classical rhetoric, which are um, uh, ethos, pathos, and uh, logos, relate to these three different elements. Um, and with McGrath, he says in the battle for hearts and minds, Christians need to know about rhetoric. Aristotle, who is the sort of classical fountain, the wellhead of thinking about rhetoric, provides a, a stimulus and a framework for more effective apologetics. So here is meant to be a bust of Aristotle, and particularly his book on rhetoric. And he defines rhetoric there as the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular uh, matter, sorry, I thought matter there, uh, admits. It's an ob- again, it's an objective definition. Uh, he's saying, uh, if you want to do good communication about the, you know, selling the benefits of buying this particular car, rhetoric would be looking at the car, thinking, what is actually attractive, persuasive, worthy of praise and admiration about this car. And like, oh, it's very fuel efficient. Okay. Then you go to the audience and you try and find out the best way of, of getting your audience to notice, to recognize the fact that this car is admirable because it's fuel efficient. It is not at all the advertising that goes, I've got a car to sell. Quick, get a lady in a bikini. <laughs> Put her across the bonnet. <laughs> yeah. So there is good rhetoric, the Aristotelian kind, and there is bad rhetoric. And our culture uh, tends to use rhetoric to mean the bad rhetoric, uh, the bikini draping kind of rhetoric, rather than the what is admirable and true, true and good and beautiful about the, the thing, and then communicating that as well as possible to your audience. Uh, so just one passage from Aristotle's rhetoric, uh, and I've substituted our terms in here in the brackets. It says, the modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word, there are three kinds. 
The first kind, um, ethos. And we, we sometimes talk in England about the, the sort of what's all company ethos or the school's ethos, its kind of character. Um, it depends on the personal character of the speaker. And it's obviously relating to, to goodness. The second, pathos, to putting the audience in a certain frame of mind. Um, you might think of the Russian composer Tchaikovsky's uh, Pathetic Symphony. Um, it doesn't, of course, mean, oh, that's a really rubbish, pathetic <laughs> symphony. It means it's a very moving symphony. Pathetic, pathos, moving the, the heart, attracting the heart. Uh, relating to beauty, of course. And the third, Logos, which we'll know from the beginning of John's Gospel, on the proof provided by the words of the speech itself, arguing for truth. Um, so what Todor was saying at dinner the other night about the way in which Christians have a sort of cultural mandate to provide people with opportunities to experience community and thinking about the big ideas, and that simply providing a platform for people to do that um, is a, a good thing. It's also good apologetics, and as much as it's, it's something that, that increases your stock of ethos with the culture around you um, so that's that is definitely one way of doing one part of doing apologetics um, even as Toto was saying if we're not talking about Christian things or putting a Christian view on it the fact that people know that it's Christians who've provided me with this opportunity to actually think and engage in ideas gives you the idea Christians are people interested in thinking and engaging in ideas and this is good ethos So, uh, back to St. Paul, uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, giving advice about evangelism. He says, when you're with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant, good ethos, and hold their interest when you speak the message. Engage the, the heart. Don't just be dry and academic with people. And then he says, choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to anyone who asks questions, just like Peter says. Um, so not only does St. Paul mention all three categories of classical rhetoric, he mentions them in the same order that Aristotle uh, discusses them as well, interestingly. Uh, again, we keep coming back to 1 Peter 3.15. These categories, since they all relate to each other, they will all relate back to... Uh, the verses that we can put them into. So you see again, ethos, pathos, and logos relating to the different elements of 1 Peter 3.15. Any quick questions again before I I'll sort of pull it all together and tie it up in a conclusion? So, now you've, you've got the background concepts of this definition, and it should make a bit more of a sort of rounded sense to you. When I'm saying apologetics is the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities as objectively true, good, and beautiful through the responsible use of the three elements of, of rhetoric. And then, hence, you get this lovely graph. <laughs> Look at this. Um, so, you have your Christian spirituality, you're conversing with someone who has their non-Christian spirituality, whatever it is. We want to encourage ourselves and other people, because they're not always doing this, to judge the spirituality by the transcendental values, by asking questions about what is true, good and beautiful. Of course, people from some spiritualities would not think of these things as being objective so there's a whole conversation argument, debate, etc to go on there but we need to be pushing Christianity not as something that's useful or will you know, become a Christian because it will make you feel better even if that's true and so on, but rather become a Christian because it is true because it is a good way of life that fulfills what we're meant to be as humans um, that it is something that's beautiful, the beauty of the Lord and, and so on. 
so art um, particularly comes in here, use of art in Christian communication and so on. And so we're judging beliefs by truth communicated through good logos. We're judging attitudes by, by the beauty. We're trying to communicate that through good pathos. And we're judging actions by goodness and trying to communicate that through putting across good ethos and developing these things in ourselves, therefore. Um, this kind of uh, understanding of apologetics and call to be apologists, as we're asked to be, is also, you can see, a sort of call to Christian discipleship uh, for ourselves. Yeah, this, ca- this cannot be a po- point of matter of, sort of pointing fingers at culture around us without pointing three back at ourselves, as is sometimes said. Uh, but I find that uh, it's sometimes humbling, but also incredibly exciting. Um, as I put it here, this, this call to apologetics is, it should not be seen as a grievous burden. <laughs> Which it can certainly come across or feel like in a lot of Christians that I've met and that sort of sense of, you know, I feel I should be doing evangelism, but I'm frightened about it. I'm scared. I don't feel resourced. I don't think I know enough. My church isn't training me to do it, giving me opportunities. Uh, and there can be a lot of sort of guilt associated with talking to people about, you should all be apologists, things. But I want to try and encourage people to kind of grasp the vision for this and see it not as a grievous burden, but as a weighty joy. Uh, The kind of of, uh, weight of glory that C.S. Lewis talked about in one of his sermons. Uh, Apologetics isn't merely an act of loving service. Why do we do this? Because we love God and we love our neighbour as ourselves. And we've got something we think is the best thing since sliced bread probably better and uh, we want people that we love to have that to be able to share in that with us Um, it's also something that's good for our own spiritual maturity our own discipleship Um, I would say just as spiritual maturity should produce an enthusiasm for apologetics so incorporating an enthusiasm for apologetics into your spiritual life will lead to greater spiritual maturity Um, Colossians uh, 4-6 Quite a long quote, but a good quote, a really good summary of the approach that I'm taking here, which I uh, found in one of Alistair McGrath's books, The Passionate Intellect, uh, and shows how what I'm saying is not uh, new or inventive or anyway. C.S. Lewis, again, used to write in his, some of his books, uh, I'm not trying to be original here. <laughs> I'm just trying to tell the truth as I see it. Um, Alison McGrath says, we cannot allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he does not also guide our thinking. The discipleship of the mind is just as important as any other part of the process by which we grow in our faith. We must see ourselves as standard bearers. Hello, greetings. Come in, come in. (laughs) We must see ourselves as standard bearers for the spiritual ethical, imaginative and intellectual vitality of the Christian faith working out why we believe that certain things are true and what difference they make to the way we live our lives above all we must expand our vision of the Christian gospel apologetics involves enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and beauty of God Uh, we're simply acting as matchmakers in, in a sense True apologetics engages not only the mind but also the heart and we impoverish the gospel if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties. We are thus called upon to demonstrate and embody the truth, beauty and goodness of faith. That's an exciting, uh, weighty uh, joy. Uh, so here are a few practical suggestions. <laughs> you wonder when the philosophers are going to get practical. But you know, I, I think having this concept, get grasping this, this vision, uh, as I say, it's not giving you a formula or a recipe to follow for doing apologetics, or here's a method. Um, you could combine this view of apologetics with all sorts of different apologetic methodologies and so on. Uh, but I think it does give you a, a, an impetus and a good, a good framework Uh, behind what we're doing Um, but five uh, practical suggestions to study and pray into some of these particularly relevant scriptures that I've I've quoted 
from uh, uh, Peter and Paul, Colossians and Philippians 4 and so on. To encourage appropriate dialogue within the church about doubts and questions concerning the truth, goodness and beauty of Christianity. I always think of this uh, verse when we're commanded to, to share, to carry one another's burdens. And it's always struck me that if there's a command for us within the church to carry one another's burdens, A, that doesn't just mean practical burdens, it has to mean intellectual burdens as well, intellectual difficulties. And also if there's a command for us as Christians to help one another, to carry one another's burdens, in a sense there's a responsibility on us as Christians to share our burdens because you can't fulfill that command with respect to me if I don't ever tell you what my burdens are. If I'm not open to sharing, to having them uh, carried jointly between us. And this uh, applies just as much in the realm of the intellect as in the realm of, you know, someone in your church has had a bike accident and broken their leg and needs help getting the shopping in or whatever. Uh, always seek, this is a phrase from Francis Schaeffer, honest answers to honest questions. Of course, some questions are not honest. They're just a smokescreen. You need to develop the, the wisdom to work out when that is. Uh, but some questions are, they deserve honest answers. Uh, we can all learn with, without ceasing, just as we can pray without ceasing, at our appropriate level in, uh, in theory and in practice. There are lots of sources out there to help us with that, obviously. And wisely put yourself in a position to gently give an apology for the hope that's within us. Um, there's absolutely nothing to encourage your uh, discipleship and spiritual development uh, in this area than actually meeting people who don't share your spirituality. Who say to you, so why are you a Christian then? Why do you do that? <laughs> why don't you believe what I do? Uh, what about this? You know, not sure. I'll go around and find out. Though. But, you know, I... <laughs> Yeah, and this is, it's not just an individual thing, it's a, it's a corporate thing. So it's great that you have this association and that you are um, encouraging one another and carrying one another's burdens in, in this apologetics uh, context here. Well, I'll leave that summary screen up for a while. So there we go, that is the, 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 the content. And if there are any more uh, questions or practical issues to, uh, to talk through, let's do that. Uh, but I, that's what I have to, to input in this session. We had a small survey during the days uh, at Health with mm. the scientific network. And uh, most of the people from UK said that uh, people do not ask questions. Mm. So here we have to keep the balance between, you know, pursuing. Uh, apologetics and, uh, but also to be ready to answer questions. Mm. What about if we have no questions to answer? Yes. So what if we have no... It's certainly true that it's, it is not easy to fall into a natural conversation. <laughs> that sort of, be ready to give answers to those who ask you the reason. It's like, what if, what if no one's asking? Um, you can... Uh, I think particularly through the organising of, of, of events provoke people into a situation in which they do feel comfortable to ask their questions it's not that people don't have questions it's that they don't ask them or they don't feel comfortable asking those questions in certain social contexts but certainly my experience is that if you put on a lecture criticising the new atheism or a debate or uh, an exploring Christianity on Alpha course or whatever, there are people who do come and do have questions that they want answering. Um, so it is about creating the right context uh, for people. And I guess that's going to be a somewhat culturally uh, conditioned thing as well. Um, so I'm always watching uh, American TV programs and certainly the impression you get of Americans from American TV shows is that Americans are 
are always sort of arguing with one another about their beliefs and their motivations and constantly psychoanalyzing each other. Um, a lot of very cleverly written American TV shows are all about which character can out-psychoanalyze the other characters. Um, they, they seem really comfortable just talking about themselves and defending themselves and putting their agenda forward versus someone else. Uh, that's not... You know, certainly not the British way of doing things um, <laughs> might not be the Bulgarian way of doing things so just finding that creating the, the culturally appropriate context um, and that you know it might not be the conversation in the office by the water cooler uh, but it might be the <laughs> yeah the, the lecture in the archaeology museum or the, the, the taking part in the, the, the cultural um, Thing that the city's putting on, or, and, and so on, say, so, yeah. They comment and not to her question. Uh, actually, uh, one of the hardest tasks we have here in Bulgaria is uh, to create a culture of discussion, a mm. debate. Uh, the early, in that aspect, uh, the task. Uh, in front of the early Christian apologists mm. in the first and uh, second century yeah. AD was uh, <coughs> so hard. Yeah. the Greco-Roman world had a certain culture of discussion yes. like on Areopagus. Yeah. But recently, uh, especially in Bulgaria, we don't have any traditions even in political sense mm. uh, of mm, any tradition in debates, of defending your view, or debate with other views, even in politics and in yeah. on social issues. And uh, uh, in, mm. in, uh, in the field of religious beliefs, it is even, it is even harder. So, mm. Yeah. We, we need to think in that direction, how yeah. to offer the... Yes. They help provoke. Yeah. And you provoke people by, by being countercultural, mm-hmm. don't you? Uh, not being countercultural for the sake of being countercultural, but, yeah. but yeah, as you're saying, finding some appropriate element of the gospel that really is counter to the cultural situation you're in, and then perhaps majoring on that as a, as a, as a tactical approach, as you're saying. And I think this thing of encouraging contexts of debate. And then slipping in debate about religious ideas into that context. Uh, it's countercultural. Um, it gets the issues of, of truth and so on on, on the table. Um, it's good ethos uh, as well. Um, so, I, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, you know. <laughs> you can certainly. There's, there's all sorts of things. Yeah, things that you can do to to round out those, those elements. So, thinking beyond. I mean, I mean, I love sort of you know academic debates about you know did Jesus rise from the dead or whatever. Get some opponent up who will debate someone or a lecture on archaeology like we'll be doing in the next evening. But you know the arts, the. Um, um, if there are art, art festivals and you can perhaps include some Christian artists and just talk about their influences and worldviews and how that shapes their art just as much as the other artists that are being featured or um, I don't know but yeah I, I think you're thinking very strategically um, uh, in your cultural context um, 
are long lines that fit in very well with this kind of grid that I've mapped out. So I find that encouraging. Yeah. Uh, one more question yeah. or comment in, in that aspect. We as Christian apologists, uh, of course, uh, would point to people also to the church as the community mm. of Christ and of God. And uh, what about if the church itself mm. has no culture of debate or discussion? Yeah. I, uh, I try to persuade uh, uh, for instance, uh, some people from my church, that church is in principle a discussing community. Mm. And I found that it is a quite new idea yeah. uh, for them. That is, many Christians think of church as a dogmatic community mm. in terms of yeah. uh, we don't need any discussion or oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is clear, it is written, yes. yeah, we know that. <laughs> 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 Which is which is which is fine when all you have to deal with is sheep. <laughs> but if you have to, you know, deal with wolves and with lambs and with you know uh, it's not productive, is it? And it, it's such a, a non-New Testament view. I would particularly recommend um, another ELF forum speaker, Dr. Peter May, and he's got a recording on the ELF website of his lecture on um, dialogue in evangelism, um, the importance of dialogue in persuasive evangelism or something like this, it's called. A very good lecture where he, he looks, he does a biblical study on the practice of Jesus and particularly Paul and pulls out some of these looking at what Paul's standard practice was and pulling out words exactly like um, dialogue that Paul didn't go and just give a, a, a sermon six feet above contradiction didn't get on his soapbox and shout at the crowd he, you know, he went to the marketplace and he engaged in dialogue a two-way conversation with people and was taking an interest clearly, um, particularly in the, in the Athenian situation, you see him taking an interest in their culture, their art, their worldviews, their religious ideas, their poets, and then communicating the gospel back to them in terms of being able to quote from their artists and their playwrights and their poets and, and so on, um, and really engaging with the culture and not having this sort of, you know, we're the, the Christians over here, just looking after ourselves in this little huddle, huddle. and uh, we must, you know, not be not not be solid by the world. Mm. So we must stay away from the worldly things uh, and become so heavenly minded we're no worldly good. You know, um, yeah, yeah. yeah so this is additionally, I guess what we're realizing is, is, is uh, I don't know if it's it's the weighty weighty uh, mm. exciting thing or if it's the whatever the other version of our negative version of it, uh, we're realizing that um, the job that we hope to do together is, is so connected with the church that the mm, church mm. itself has to be renewed in order yes. for this type of a job to actually get done. Yeah. You know, I mean, a parachurch type thing like mm, we are, mm. are doing, no matter how much good, if, if the other component, yeah. which is the body of Christ, is not on board together working with us, then it's limited. Mm, well, yeah. Let me, let me put one spin on that because I think I would say you are the church. You are the, the body of Christ. There are certain denominational ways in which the body of Christ organises itself as an institution locally. <laughs> but that's not the church. <laughs> you are the church. Um... And certainly you may have um, uh, a job to do with respect to the, the institutionally organised church <laughs> with a small c <laughs> within your, your country. But I, I sort of want to encourage you that you, know, you, you are the people with the authority and the power and the mandate. Because <laughs> you are the church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs>
Peter, one question. Mm. Sorry that I, uh, we, we Thank you for joining us, finding us. We had such difficulty finding it in the dark last night, I tell you. <laughs> uh, I, I have a question regarding the, the, first, the, the bottom, uh, bottom row yeah. about beliefs and mm -hmm. the truth. Yeah. And communicating to. Lo logos, uh, reasoned argument, yeah. Uh, do you find it possible to. Uh, search for truth in today's uh, Western society. I mean, about political correctness and yeah. all the ways, and that's your opinion, and blah, blah, blah. I, I find yeah. it possible in our situation, and my personal dialogues with people. We always end to yeah. that's your truth. Yeah, yes. And <laughs> the, the classic kind of... The, the classic postmodern thing of denying the objectivity of more than one of these categories, the way I look at it is kind of, um, to use the warfare metaphor, not the, the best metaphor in apologetics, but it does keep cropping up, doesn't it? Um, you know, if we're attacking someone's stronghold with reasons, as Paul talks about, we're kind of on a level playing field. Now, I've got my argument, my trebuchet is going to lob this objection to your worldview wall and if my argument's stronger than your argument you're, you're going to agree to play by the rules and change your mind that's, that's the responsibility both sides of a debate take place postmodernism sort of comes along and tries to dig this big moat around the wall fill it with water such a big moat that your arguments are just going to go Sploosh. <laughs> I'm not going to get to the wall. I'm not going to let you get to my wall. Now, if you're the general attacking the, besieging the castle and it's got a big moat round it and that's making things difficult, what do you have to do? Drain the moat. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> what, what about saying, the first thing you, what you don't do is say they're not going to play by the rules so we shouldn't let's us abandon talking about truth and goodness and beauty and just try and persuade them by drawing them into our community and never getting them to because then they're never actually going to become Christians because Christianity involves believing these things are true and good and beautiful um, so we don't abandon our position just because they're trying to make it awkward for us and not engaging but actually of course what the postmodernist is doing is is arguing that it is true that there are no truths or saying you really shouldn't force your views on me just because you um, because there's no objective truth to whether or not you should or shouldn't do anything like force your views on other people so it's not that the postmodernist isn't arguing or thinking actually it's just that they're doing it really really badly <laughs> um, they are arguing and engaging they are because you can't get away from it making assumptions in their life about what's true how they're going to live what you should do and shouldn't do and so on um, they're just sort of blinkering themselves perhaps to the fact that that's what is going on so it might be harder, but I think we can't abandon kind of our foundations in engaging, and we have to try and do what we can to get the other side to recognise the, the self-contradictory nature of what they're doing in saying, we're not actually going to argue with you. Um, we're not going to engage at, at this level of what's true and what is good and so on, um, because they'll always be be assuming these things that they're denying in the very process of doing it. Um, so I was chatting to a student from Norway the other day, actually, who was having this problem with, with a friend, and he, he said, I, I'm always coming up against this, this wall of, you know, truth for you, and so on. Um, and I was saying, well, maybe it's not an intellectual issue for this other person, really. Um, maybe it is more of a sort of volitional uh, uh, an attitudinal of what they're prepared to actually do in life 
commitment. And if that's true, and I'm not saying it always is, because you know, honest answers deserve honest questions, deserve honest answers, and some are smoke screens and some are not. But if it is mainly a volitional thing, you could be sort of, in a sense, hitting your, your head against a brick wall and trying to, to argue about it, however much you point out, look, you're contradicting yourself by saying it's true that there are no truths and so on. For some people, you can get them to realise that and move because of that. For other people, it might be because they don't really want to face that maybe Christianity is true and that would mean I have to change my life in certain ways that I you know, really don't want to. Um, and you say, well, okay, so if I can't argue him out of it, what, what, what have I got left? Well, love, prayer, and I said, occasionally, just every time he actually does something in life that shows that he really does think that some things really are true or good or beautiful or wrong or evil or ugly, just point it out to him gently. <laughs> um, just drip in the fact that on his conscience that actually he's just being inconsistent. Because oh, you do, oh, you're really annoyed at that you know, politician for taking their expenses and you just said you know, that was really wrong with them. You do think some things are wrong then. Carry on, you know, <laughs> life. Um, maybe um, a, a less sort of frontal attack. <laughs> maybe the more kind of sideways kind of, oh, hey, hey, giving a bit of a friendly dig. Uh, <laughs> you've got to do this in a context of a loving relationship, otherwise a friendly dig is not perceived as a friendly dig. It's just an attack. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think kind of trying to think creatively around, around the problem but without abandoning where we're coming from is the, is the only thing that you can do. Um, and of course in apologetics as in everything else in life, God does not call us to be successful. Um, he calls us to be faithful. <laughs> Whether or not we're successful, that's up to the Lord and to them. And <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that was the, the, the best kind of bit of Christian advice about um, kind of how you're measuring your kind of success in anything in life, and particularly in the Christian life. Not called by God to be successful, but to be faithful. Uh, I've always found that really encouraging viewpoint to take. <laughs> yeah. Thank you.